Okay, everybody, it's a big news day. Today on the program, we're going to talk about Coinbase and Brian Armstrong calling out the SEC uh, over litigation as regulation and the fact that they're being investigated and they received a Wells notice that they will not be allowed to release Coinbase's lending program where you lend cryptocurrency to get a 7% or so return on your money. And we were lucky enough to have Matt uh, Balanceweig, Matt Balanceweig, Swig, Swig, Matt Balanceweig from uh, Genesis. He's the head of institutional lending, and we went down the rabbit hole with Matt. He's an incredible guest because he loans cryptocurrency out to institutional investors, and we go deep uh, on Tether, on USDC, and on what would happen if the Bitcoin network went down. Stick with us. I do a couple of Ask Jasons at the end that are really interesting. It's going to be a great episode. This Week in Startups is brought to you by LinkedIn Marketing. To redeem a $100 LinkedIn ad credit and launch your first campaign, go to linkedin.com slash thisweekinstartups. Embroker's startup insurance program helps startups secure the most important types of insurance at a lower cost and with less hassle. Save up to 20% off traditional insurance today at embroker.com slash twist. While you're there, get an extra 10% off using offer code TWIST. And Lemon. Need to speed up your product development without draining your budget? Hire vetted engineers from Europe at lemon.io. Mention TWIST to get 15% off for the first four weeks. Okay, Coinbase is having a dispute with the SEC over what is a security and their new Lend product, the SEC. Uh, has issued a Wells notice informing the company that the regulatory body will take legal action. Coinbase launches their crypto lending platform uh, called Lend. Very creative of the Coinbase team there. It is what uh, they say it is. It lets you lend your crypto in order to make a return on it. We'll get into that. It's kind of confusing, and hopefully our guest will clarify it for us. According to Coinbase, in a blog post, uh, by their chief legal officer, a Wells notice is an official way of letting company know that a regulatory plans to sue the company. And uh, Brian Armstrong did a long tweet storm uh, last night about this, which sort of set Twitter on fire. And uh, he used some pretty charged language. Here's from the blog post, which says the SEC has told us it wants to sue us over Lend. We don't know why. And uh, it outlines the background of Lend and its relationship with the SEC. Uh, what they provided to the SEC thus far, and the next step. Basically, uh, Lend is going to let Coinbase users, members, customers, I guess customers would be the best word, earn interest on their digital assets. Now, this means it's considered a security by the SEC, and Coinbase's blog post states, Coinbase's Lend program doesn't qualify as a security. Or to use more specific legal terms, it's not an investment contract or a note. Customers won't be investing in the program, but rather lending the USDC, which is the stable coin that Jeremy Allaire, who's supposed to come on the podcast, uh, we haven't kind of went dark on us. I don't know why. Uh, but we asked him to come on the pod. He agreed. I've known him for 20 years. So it's a little bit weird. Um, but USDC, they hold on Coinbase's platform in connection with their existing relationship. So the uh, I, I like the uh, Brian Armstrong quotes uh, a little bit better than the blog post written by their general counsel. He starts with a barn burner here. And uh, I, I don't know, the general counsel told them this is a good idea, but this seemed ill advised. I'll be totally honest. Um, and we don't have the whole story here. So what you'll see is the press will make all kinds of sensational headlines around this to get clicks. What I'm going to do here is kind of present what I think is happening, knowing that we only have partial information. We don't know exactly what the SEC is investigating and why they're so concerned. And we actually don't know what Brian Armstrong's position is exactly. Uh, and what his motivation for coming over the top of the SEC is. But here's what he starts the tweet storm with. Some really sketchy behavior coming out of the SEC recently. Story time. That's the first part of the tweet. Millions of crypto holders have been earning yield on their assets over the last few years. It makes sense if you want to lend out your funds, you can earn a return. Everybody seems happy. Tweet number three. A bunch of great companies in crypto have been offering versions of this for years. Coinbase came out recently and said we would be launching our own version. Tweet number four. We were planning to go live a few weeks ago, so we reached out to the SEC to give them a friendly heads up and briefing. They responded by telling us, this Lend feature is a security. Okay, seems strange. How can lending be a security? So we asked the SEC to help us understand and share their view. 
We always make an effort to work proactively with regulators and keep an open mind. They refuse to tell us why they think it's a security and instead subpoena a bunch of records from us. We comply, demand testimony from our employees, we comply, and then tell us they will be suing us if we proceed to launch with zero explanation as to why. And then here's number seven. And I'm, you know, this is Brian's voice. Look, we're committed to following the law. Sometimes the law is unclear. So if the SEC wants to publish guidance, we're also happy to follow that. It's nice if you actually enforce it evenly across industry equally, by the way. But in this case, they're refusing to offer any opinion in writing to the industry on what should be allowed and why, and instead are engaging in intimidation tactics behind closed doors. Whatever the theory is here, it feels like a reach land grab versus other regulators. Uh, meanwhile, plenty of other crypto companies continue to offer a lend feature, but Coinbase is somehow not allowed to. Now, I'll just pause here in his uh, overview of this. He's coming on pretty strong here, and the, the SEC does have uh, a very interesting approach, which is they just take a bunch of information, they request a bunch of information, they don't tell you exactly what's going on. And they're kind of mysterious in that way. Um, I know this story from many people from Mark Cuban, who was investigated and other people who've had to deal with the SEC. They're pretty powerful, they request a bunch of documents, and then you don't know where you stand. And it's sometimes unclear. So a lot of people came to Brian's defense here and said, Yeah, you know, the SEC should be a little bit more clear on this. He goes on in all of this and says, in May of this year, I traveled to DC to meet with every regulator and branch of government I could. The SEC was the only regulator that refused to meet with me, saying we're not meeting with any crypto companies. So that's kind of interesting, you know, going down in his tweet storm. If we end up in court, we may finally get the regulatory clarity the SEC refuses to provide, but regulation by litigation should be the last resort for the SEC, not the first. Our door remains open. Hopefully the SEC steps up to create the clarity this industry deserves without harming consumers and companies in the process. Okay, really interesting. And that led me to ask my question, which is, can somebody explain to me how a crypto company can afford to pay 7% interest on your crypto holdings? Who are they loaning the crypto to and how much interest are those folks paying? That's the question I have about all this. Who are the people on the other side of this? I understand if you own Bitcoin, that you might want to get a loan against your Bitcoin, right? You have you own Bitcoin, you bought it at $1,000, it went to 50. Now you're sitting on, let's say you bought 10 of these coins. Now you're sitting on $500,000. You don't want to sell your Bitcoin because you believe in it. You're a hodler. You want to keep it because you think it's going to 5 million. You think there's another 10x and you'll do 100x on your journey. It'll go from $1,000 a coin, you know, all the way up to 500,000 a coin, whatever you think it's going to go up. And you're going to be sitting pretty on $5 million at some point. Okay, I get it. That's your bet you're making. It's your right to make that bet. But you want to put that money to work in your life. So you loan out your Bitcoin to somebody else and you get paid interest on it. That is what people want to do. It's also called a margin loan. So a person with assets, say like a bunch of stocks in a portfolio, can get a loan against it. So that's the question I have. And I'm going to bring on our guests to discuss that very question and the Coinbase action we've seen. Every startup founder and marketer needs high quality leads. Well, with 30 million companies on LinkedIn, they can help you take your startup's growth to the next level. We've used LinkedIn marketing before here at This Week in Startups and launch our investment firms. It's really an amazing platform, as you know, because you've been using it for over a decade. LinkedIn offers seamless tools for lead generation and brand building. First, you might want people to just become aware of your brand. Maybe you want them to read a blog post or follow your company on LinkedIn. That's great for building your brand, but you may at some point want that lead gen. And you may want to get their email and set up a demo of your software product or your marketplace. You understand the difference between these things. You're sophisticated. And you know you can target and reach people down to their job titles, the company name and location, engaging customers by account, allowing you to build relationships with your most important acquisition targets, where they live and where they're ready to do business. And that's LinkedIn. So LinkedIn's advertising capabilities will allow you to acquire those new customers and to grow existing accounts so that your business is set up to maximize its potential. Here is an amazing offer from our friends at LinkedIn. They're offering $100 in advertising credits so that you can get started today. Learn how to connect with customers on LinkedIn's Dime. Visit linkedin.com slash this week in startups. And you got to spell this all out with no spaces and no dashes. LinkedIn.com slash this week in startups to claim your credit. Terms and conditions do apply because they're giving you 100. All right, with us is Matt Balanswag. 
He is the director and the head of institutional lending at Genesis. Uh, according to the LinkedIn page, Genesis is a global leader in institutional digital asset markets and a full service digital currency prime brokerage. I heard you on uh, Kevin Rose's podcast, I guess in the spring talking about these loans. So maybe you could start by just telling us what is the loan structure you provide? And you heard my question, who's on the other side of the loans? And welcome yeah, to the program. Definitely. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, I really appreciate it, Jason, and, and good to be here. Um, in terms of you know how, how these loans are structured, so there's two sides to this market, as you kind of alluded to. There's the retail deposit side, which is basically platforms that offer the ability for retail users to get yield on a variety of different assets. And then there's the whole institutional side of the market, which is basically where these assets go. Um, and Genesis is really focused on the institutional side of the market. So we're one of the largest institutional lenders in crypto. Uh, we lend, you know, roughly 30 to 40 different assets out to institutional trading firms, hedge funds, market makers, um, quant trading firms. So think, uh, some of the largest kind of uh, trading institutions out in Chicago, right? The jump tradings of the world, the Jane streets, the Susquehanna's. So these um, are people just to summarize here who work in finance, and they need money to go execute a trade? Am I correct? That's exactly right. Yeah. So they, they okay. need capital, whether it's in the form of crypto like BTC or ETH, or dollars or stablecoin like USDC, Genesis will act as basically the intermediary that faces these institutional counterparties that need it for trading purposes, or just arbitrage purposes, which we can get into. So a for the trading purpose, Somebody at a hedge fund says, I want to make a big trade today. I want to buy a bunch of Amazon because I think they're going to do great because of this new product coming out. They want to buy $100 million in Amazon. They would borrow from people's crypto holdings and you would facilitate that so they can make the trade. Yeah, except this, in this case, it would really only pertain to like buying crypto, right? So let's say a hedge fund says, hey, I want to take a $10 million long position in Bitcoin, but I want to do it borrowing cash. So basically getting leverage on that, on that position. Okay. They would borrow USDC or dollars from Genesis um, and pay us an interest rate on that to then basically place a buy order through our trading desk to get that exposure. So now they're long Bitcoin, but they did it on borrowed cash and stablecoin, and they're paying an interest to get that long position. And what they're getting in return is that they didn't have to put the cash up themselves to take that position. So they're getting that inherent leverage. And okay. the same can, can work basically on the other side if they wanted to go short BTC or Ether they borrow the BTC or ETH from Genesis to then sell through the, through the desk to basically generate dollar proceeds. So you could basically do it on either side, which tries if they're borrowing dollars in stablecoin or crypto like BTC and ETH. So to use the example I was sort of leading up to before, somebody got really uh, lucky and made this great bet of buying 10 Bitcoin for $1,000 each. It went up to $50,000 and now they're sitting on $500,000 some trader says, I want to buy $500,000 worth of Bitcoin, I'm going to borrow $500,000 because I'm long it, I buy it. Um, that person is going to get paid what percent on their money and you're going to make what percent? Yeah, so generally people right now are paying, call it seven to 10% annualized on the dollar component of the loan. So if you want to borrow dollars to get long, it's pretty expensive, um, really, because there's a lot of demand for people to get long in this market. And so therefore, cash is just expensive. If you're looking to borrow BTC or ETH to basically go short, where you need it for other trading kind of working capital purposes, the rates are closer to like 3%. So a lot, a lot cheaper, uh, just one, because there's more supply in the market. And two, because people want to be on the long side, not the short Got side in, in, a, in a bullish market like this. So let's take this trader as an example. They borrow the 500,000, they buy Bitcoin. Bitcoin goes from 50,000 to 25,000, which is something that happens every year or two with Bitcoin. It crashes and then comes back. We've had, seen it happen three or four times. And now they've lost $250,000. What happens? Does the yep. person who loaned so, it lose so, yeah, it? So Do you lose where, it? Yep. This is where um, collateral comes into play here. So. If they're borrowing, let's say, you know, a million dollars from Genesis to go long Bitcoin, right? We're taking the Bitcoin they purchased as collateral plus some sort of excess margin from the borrower. So usually that's another 50%. So now we hold 150% of the value of the loan. So if Bitcoin falls in price, they're at some point going to be underwater on their loan, which is when we're going to actually have to ask them to top up more collateral to Genesis. And if they don't top up more collateral in time, we then basically have rights to sell the Bitcoin collateral that we're holding plus the excess margin to make ourselves whole on the loan. So that's really what our bread and butter is from a risk management perspective. And that's what we manage on a day to day basis is that collateral risk and market risk as the prices move around. So 
how much do you have loaned out at any given point in time? So right now, and, and Genesis is probably one of the largest lenders in the space. Um, we have a book of roughly $11.3 billion lent out to the street. And that's to roughly call it 350 or so kind of unique institutional borrowers. So like I mentioned earlier, these are hedge funds, trading firms. It's not, it's, it's not a retail platform. Um, so we're specifically facing a lot of the active traders that are institutional in nature in the space. So if I'm translating here, you have customers who are super trustworthy that have been around for a while and you know who they are. You know this customer very well and you don't think there's a risk of them defaulting in some major way or not being able to pay back the loans in the case, let's say there was an epic crash and it lost 99% of its value, you wouldn't be insolvent, would you? Exactly. That, that's right. So we're basically relying on one, our ability to manage collateral well and take the initial levels that we think make sense relative to the volatility of the asset. And two, you know, wh- what is the actual, um, you know, credit worthiness of that counterparty? So we do take things like financials and we do credit diligences and get pretty intimate with who our borrowers are and basically size our loans accordingly. So we're much more institutional in nature. We're dealing with some of the largest kind of most sophisticated firms in the space. And because of our underwriting and collateral management, we feel in a very good position to kind of manage the risk on a day to day basis. There are people out there uh, claiming they'll give people 20, 30, 40% interest on their crypto holdings. What is that about? Yeah, so that that's definitely like less common, right? We, we see interest rates on the on the cash side, usually between, you know, seven to 12%. Um, in there, there have been times in crypto when, when those rates have probably blown up to 20%. Um, wow. And that, that's probably what you're referencing. A lot of that is just due to the market structure, right? It's due to the inefficiency in, in this market. And in a really, really bullish environment, there's so much demand for cash in the space uh, that people are willing to pay interest rates in you know, the 20, 25% range just to get long. Another reason is if you look at kind of the difference between where the spot market is trading and some of these futures markets, there's an inherent like basis between those two instruments. And so if you had cash, you could simply just buy the spot that's trading lower, sell the future and capture that kind of basis, which is like a call to cash and carry trade. Um, and because the market says starved for cash, uh, those, those basis curves tend to kind of blow out in a really bullish environment. And part of that is really due to the fact that there's not much institutional balance sheet and cash in the space that's going out to fund some of these trading firms that in, in a traditional market, that, you know, there's so much cash to go around that those spreads wouldn't persist for very long. But because they, a lot of the banks or, or you know, large asset managers don't want to kind of lend out balance sheet into the crypto space at this point, there tends to be this persistent basis that, that kind of creeps up, which drives the cash rates higher. How do you um, know if you are loaning your money to an Archegos who then goes insolvent and uh, Normura, I think, lost like $2.9 billion back in April? How do you know that that doesn't happen to you? Or do you not have the ability to know that? You know, so I mean, so this is like where the the difference comes in from, from a crypto perspective is that we're actually holding the bearer collateral, right? So in the case of Archegos, they're they're super levered. You know, they're pledging assets that were already pledged. In this case, we have the Bitcoin on hand, right? Like we have Got the it. crypto on hand. And if the price moves against us and we don't get the collateral requirement we need, we can immediately sell that into the market that's a highly liquid market. So that's Got kind it. of the pro of operating it in crypto versus traditional markets. Um, so when you see the, and obviously you don't work for Coinbase, but you're in the space. When you saw uh, Brian Armstrong's tweet last night, what was your initial reaction to it? Yeah, initial reaction was, um, you know, it, it feels like there's definitely a, a lot of, I mean, there, there's always been a lot of regulatory uncertainty in this space, specifically around lending and lending products. So, you know, on one hand, surprising to see, you know, the, the kind of aggressive tone that, that the SEC took, but also like not that surprising to see, um, you know, uh, a, a large, you know, regulatory body like the SEC kind of come and say, Hey, we're looking at this and we're taking a pretty aggressive stance to protect kind of retail investors. You know, Genesis, I think we're, we're a bit different in terms of the way we're structured, where, you know, we're much more institutional in nature. We're really just doing direct lending to institutional counterparties. We don't have, you know, a, a retail deposit app or platform. Um, and so that's kind of the, the stance we've taken, but totally kind of get that, you know, this is a completely gray area. It's going to be an evolving regulatory picture. Um, but also understand, you know, Brian's pushback and, and try and, you know, push for clarity and consistency, uh, which makes a lot of sense. You mentioned USDC, 
um, you operate using uh, Circle's stablecoin as your default. Yeah, so we we are definitely big users of USDC. Um, we you know we have the on off ramps with Circle and Coinbase to go in and out of dollars and USDC at one to one, basically at any time. Um, and it's a great way to basically you know be able to lend out dollars, but on you know on the blockchain, right, as an ERC twenty token to counterparties that can seamlessly use that to go in and out of you know positions, whether it's BTC, ETH, or other crypto. So. Um, we're super active in USDC. It's definitely our preferred stablecoin, and it's you know has the most liquidity out there, kind of in the market. Um, I think Tether is bigger, and people Tether would argue they have more liquidity. Um, is that true, or does Circle have more liquidity? Because I know this is a changing landscape right now. And do you use Tether? Yeah, so Tether Tether obviously is is larger from a market cap perspective, um, and we do we do use Tether as well. I think a lot of our counterparties overseas. Um, you know, have a preferred means of working with Tether, partly just because of legacy reasons and that it's been around for a long time. Um, and, and it's, you know, they're just kind of accustomed to using it. It's also listed on a lot of exchanges. So we operate, you know, we operate in both. We obviously don't take like a view long or short on the asset. We're just simply using it as kind of a, a capital, uh, you know, working capital really for, for our lending business that again, we can kind of go in and out of dollars into Tether, um, depending on kind of where that market is. Uh, Canada Beth, is uh, banning Tether from their first two exchanges. New York Attorney General banned Tether. They're reportedly being investigated for the DOJ. Um, what are your thoughts on Tether? Do you think that's a scam? Do you think that there's uh, some malfeasance going on there? Do you agree with the Attorney General's uh, position on it? I have, I have no view really or insight to, to kind of take a stance there. Like, you know, until we see... Well, you do use it. So you've taken it. one stance, which is yep. you're willing to use it, even though Canada's banning it and the New York Attorney General took action. Why would you use that if you don't have to? Or do you have yeah. to because of the international people? We don't have to. I think for us, we're saying, look, there's still a lot of liquidity in that market. And it's very easy for us to trade and mm -hmm. utilize. Um, and so we have you know, connections to basically all the exchanges Tether trades on. Until that liquidity dries up, or we see some real indication that this, you know, this might not be a liquid asset that we can really count on and rely on as, as a dollar-backed stablecoin, um, then we'll likely continue to, you know, have it as 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 part of you know operation. And we've we've obviously done our own kind of diligence from a legal perspective, and are certainly kind of keeping our, our hand on the pulse there, um, you know, as, as we make our decisions. It's definitely an evolving, you know, uh, course of action for us. So I think it's a really generous, magnanimous way of saying like. Hey, you understand that there's some risk here. You see the the headlines, so maybe you're not holding it, but you'll transact in it. Am I reading correctly there? Yeah, that, that's basically right. Like we're we're not taking like a position in tether. We're not like a long tether on our balance sheet. We don't want to be subject to some potential risk that the asset does depreciate. But we'll certainly use it so long as we know that we're not actually delta exposed to the price appreciation or, de or depreciation. But you wouldn't feel the same way about USDC. You would hold USDC because you feel God, Jeremy Allaire's going to be public in the US. He's doing everything right. And he made it dollar for dollar back. We, yeah, we, we would certainly hold USDC. We do hold USDC on our balance sheet. It's 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 very much, you know, dollars for, for USDC one to one. Um, and, and you could see that in the market, right? There's no fluctuation around the peg. It's just mm. a $1, right? And USDT can fluctuate, you know, we, we might we might be at 1.01, we might be at 0.998. Um, so there is some market risk there for us that we just would prefer not to have to manage. Yeah. Uh, and so we'll, we'll typically just kind of use USDC as the preferred coin if we need to swap in and out. I appreciate you being like super upfront and giving that like really plain English uh, explanation. You're a great guest. Most people are not willing to talk about these things, but you probably saw the news about this Evergreen or Evergrande. I don't know how to pronounce it. This Chinese real estate company. Have, have you seen those headlines starting to bubble up? I have not. Oh, okay. So I guess the issue is around Tether. They own commercial paper. There's a Chinese real estate company and people are starting to you know, the bit finexed and the, you know, uh, folks who are on this like tether case are kind of obsessing about that. If you don't have business insurance, you failed one of the first steps of being an entrepreneur. Startups should look no further than in broker. In brokers technology saves you time and money. Their prices are up to 20% lower with better coverage than the incumbents. And you can go from sign up to quote and purchase in just 10 minutes. 
So when you work with a broker instead of business insurance incumbents, you're not dealing with large, slow corporations. And the sign-up takes days, not weeks. The process is transparent with no opaque pricing. So let's talk about two very crucial types of startup insurance. You'll know that these are very much in the news, especially the first one, cyber insurance. You have to have cyber insurance, which covers tax. And they happen more than you think. A lot of them you don't hear about publicly, right? Because people are uh, ashamed to have them happen and they should have done a better job, but mistakes happen. And sometimes software is imperfect, right? Or a human is imperfect and they make a mistake. They use a weak password. They forget to put two-factor on. Well, you want to have cyber insurance just in case that happens. Plus, DNO insurance. This helps if your directors and officers do something dumb and you get sued. Very simple, very important to have cyber and DNO. So to instantly buy custom-built insurance for startups, go to imbroker.com slash twist, E-M-B-R-O-K-E-R.com slash twist. While you're there, you're going to get an extra 10% off by using the offer code twist, T-W-I-S-T. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. Back to loaning out your crypto. Um, is this something you think retail investors should be doing? Yeah, I think I think in terms of um, you know if I if I were to put myself in a retail investor shoes, it's really like thinking about the platform risk you're taking. Right, everything is a risk to return decision. You're giving up the keys to your crypto to earn an interest rate, and so you have to be thinking about who's the counterparty I'm facing. Why are they qualified to pay me an interest rate and hold my crypto? What does their reputation look like? How large is their offering? You know, who are they backed by? All of those questions should come to mind. And then it's basically, you know, is seven, eight, nine, ten percent worth that risk? And I think that risk is highly variable depending on the platform you're dealing with. Um, I think, you know, for Genesis, right, we're a highly regulated entity. We're backed by Digital Currency Group, which is one of the largest, um, you know, organizations in, in our market. Um, we're super well capitalized and we've been, you know, doing this since 2018 with no capital losses or defaults. So, you know, I think we're, we're a great credit in the space. Um, and you just have to do your diligence on the platform you're lending out to. So it's really a unique situation. Um, you know, there's no cookie cutter approach to it. It's really just return to risk and doing as much diligence as you can on, on the platform that you're going to be lending to. So let me ask a scenario here. Um, you are, uh, looking at people getting, you know, basis points on their savings account, you know, in their Bank of America account. In other words, they make nothing. Yeah. Uh, and so people are making nothing. And then they can make, I don't know, 10 times as much putting it in Coinbase land or whatever product is available, or even offshore accounts, maybe making more. But who knows, because those are smart contract based, if somebody hacked the smart contract, their money could go away. So that's a risk. Um, is what the I, this is just my theory, but uh, let me let me uh, let me run this one up the flagpole and see if anybody salutes, as they say in the business. Um, it could a theory here be that, um, and this is what you know the sort of conspiracy theorists are saying. Hey, the SEC is concerned that retail investors, represented by Coinbase, which represents retail crypto writ large, are going to see these rates and pull all their money out of the banks and put their savings on coinbase because if you can make seven percent that's pretty juicy like i'm looking at it going well do, should i be in the stock market or should i just make seven percent of my money and sleep well at night is that theory uh one that you think is realistic here and if a large number of people did make this move could the crypto economy handle that yeah i think so one like that that's the question i think that you know Caught, like that's the question that's ultimately raising eyebrows from 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 a regulator's perspective is like you know how how can we kind of best protect the retail investor? Um, so I do I do think that like yeah there there's it's certainly an area that's that's super gray. Um, there's probably going to be a ton of a ton more regulatory guidance that ultimately comes out um, you know by the SEC and other regulators over time. Um, but it's also like that's the opportunity that this market's providing right now because of how inefficient and new it is and how much opportunity there is from a trading perspective. And it's really passing that, that opportunity through to investors that are willing to put their capital there. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm kind of somewhere in the middle there where it's, again, like this is, you know, if you're, if you're a reasonable investor uh, and you have a sense of risk to return, you know, that's, that's kind of on the individual to do that assessment. Um, but at the same time, I, I do understand that there's also going to be, you know, more regulation that comes out to kind of protect and better guide those investors. Um, in terms of can the market handle it? Um, there, there's a lot more cash that the market can absorb right now. Uh, and you can kind of see that, like I mentioned earlier, in kind of the implied annualized basis of these, of, of the market, right? It's implying right now even like 10% and on stable coins. So, you know, 
Austin's Genesis right now, we're still borrowing more, more and more USDC and dollars from the market. I think other platforms out there are still cash hungry as well. Uh, and until the spreads kind of close and the inefficiency dries up, there's going to be this bid for cash in the market that's going to persist for some time. So if I were to translate that, people are looking for cash to invest, and that's what's creating this opportunity. It's, that's it's what you mean by the spread? Cash. Yeah, it's looking for cash to not only invest and to get long, but also to use for like trading arbitrage purposes. And this mm-hmm. is kind of where the sophistication of the entity drives the borrowing. So market makers and hedge funds that like study, you know, differences between markets and want to capture just spreads without really taking a directional view, they need cash really as working capital to just fuel their trading. So they're not taking a directional view and investing. They're mm-hmm. really just arbitraging spreads. And because this is crypto and markets are really inefficient, there's a lot of spread and there's a lot of money to be made by just trading in and out of those. What what keeps you up at night? Does any of this make you nervous? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a better way to put it is like, you know, our, our eyes are, are constantly surveilling the market. We're, we're trying to feel out, you know, what direction are things headed? What should our stance be from a regulatory perspective as we get new guidance? Um, so no, I wouldn't say I'm concerned. I think this is a natural evolution of a market that's still in its nascent stages that has a long way to go from a maturation perspective. But you know, to me, it's 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 great to see that like yes, there there are a lot of um, you know governing bodies and regulatory agencies that are understanding. Hey, this market's here to stay. We need to have a view. We need to shape that view. The way that that's done, you know, it, it can be um, you know more conservative or less. Uh, but I think this is a natural evolution of a market that's that it's in, is, is in its early stages. Uh, this is going to seem like an okay boomer silly question, uh, but I think this is probably what's going through the boomer mind of the SEC, which is if in some way the Bitcoin network was compromised. Let's just I, I know that people are going to say this is impossible, but if it was hacked or a denial of service attack happened, or somehow Bitcoin trading was halted because Bitcoin was compromised, what would happen? If the Bitcoin to your was, company was jeopardized, yeah, yeah it, I mean that's def- like when you when you think about right like tail risk of the space and um, you know the asymmetrical you know what if scenario, that's obviously like something that's really just not likely to happen, just given how decentralized sure. and and difficult it would be to do that at this point. So it's not really a risk that like you can measure and really prepare for. But like, I would think about that as just a very tail event, black swan systemic risk that if it did happen there, you know, there would be first, second and third order consequences that, that, you know, institutions would have to manage. Uh, Maybe that means Genesis halting its own trading of Bitcoin. Um, You know, maybe it's looking at each asset and blockchain independently. You know, if Bitcoin were were to, you know, be jeopardized in some sort of capacity. Um, you know, would we would we just remain lending the other assets? Would we put a pause on things holistically? I mean, there, there's a ton of things we'd have to think through, but it, it's certainly like a, a very improbable uh, event at this sure. point. I mean, if it was 0.1% or 0.01%, one in 1,000, one in 10,000, you would basically have a trillion dollar hole in the economy. How many people hold Bitcoin? Who holds that trillion dollars? I guess would be the question. And you would have firms like yours would be wiped out or Coinbase would be wiped out. A bunch of people who put money into it would lose that money, it would be gone. And I think that's probably what the SEC is thinking here is nobody's in charge of Bitcoin. And it's their job to think about the black swan events, right? Which is why they have FDIC insurance and why they have regulations. So I think that's probably their motivation here. And they seem like they're being maybe too protectionist, but that's probably their motivation, right? You, do you think they have a nefarious motivation here? Or do you think that they're just trying to, you know, I don't think it's at all. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's really just trying to you know go back to protecting the the retail investor. I think through more education and understanding of the space and the technology, they're going to realize that like sure, firms can be regulated, institutions can be regulated. There's going to be laws that protect you know people from certain platforms, um, but obviously like the focus likely is probably not going to be on on the Bitcoin blockchain itself, but on some of these institutions and platforms that you know, might be a risk area for for the average investor versus like just owning Bitcoin uh, and it being like a, a chain problem or protocol problem. 
When you are trying to grow a startup fast, hiring engineers will slow you down like nothing else. Don't I know it? So many companies I invest in are telling me they can't get their next version out because they don't have a great engineer. Well, Lemon.io will find you a perfect candidate in just 48 hours. It's a marketplace of engineers from Europe, and they test and interview every developer to eliminate the risk of a failed project. Lemon.io is the perfect solution if you are a technical co-founder and you need to delegate some of your important tasks, or you have a project that needs specific technology and you don't have that skill on your team yet, or you are just growing so fast that you need to add more developers and get more done faster. They'll match you with a candidate within 48 hours, and if it doesn't work out, they'll replace the developer right away. So here is your CTA, the old call to action. If you could use a full-time or even part-time developer to run your projects faster, go to lemon.io slash twist. Once again, lemon, L-E-M-O-N dot I-O slash twist. And you'll receive a 15% discount for the first four weeks of work with that amazing developer. Well done, Lemon. Okay, check it out, everybody. Lemon.io slash twist. How'd you get into all this, Matt? Um, so I I started at Genesis about four and a half years ago, um, which was relatively early. We were, we were an eight-person you know, trading shop at the time. One of my colleagues um, at the hedge fund I used to work at, Bridgewater Associates, was actually the second to join Grayscale Investments, which is one of the largest asset managers in crypto. Um, so he he really you know started talking to me about the space. I went down the the crypto rabbit hole, um, you know, back in 2017. You know, saw DCG and what they were building, and, and where Genesis could fit in in that in that infrastructure. Um, and it was just an awesome you know bet to basically say, hey, if this if this infrastructure does take off, these guys are right in the middle of it. Um, and there's so much you can do, and there's so much to to be built, and there's so much way you know there's so many ways to impact the space. So for me, it was a no brainer. You know, you could always go back to traditional finance, um, but like having a um, you know a, a a major inflection point in technology and finance to miss that would have been, um, uh, you know, just a, a bad move. So I'm glad I. Glad what was I made it like? That, uh, yeah. What was it like working for Ray Dalio? It's supposed to be a very unique culture there, where you kind of interface and criticize each other in a very deeply thoughtful way to kind of sharpen each other's blades. But you go through these 360 like intense. Um, I don't know if we want to call them takedowns or you know, candidness between employees, did you get put into that fire line? And what was it like? Yeah, that I think that that fire and that spirit was like, you know, ever persisting at Bridgewater, like that's that was the culture that was the way of being, um, you know, for some, it's super, uh, like unnatural. And so you feel like, you know, you're thrown into this environment that's just uber transparent, rat like, ra- they call it radical transparency. Uh, and, but for others, it's like, you know, you're kind of used to operating that way. You want to put your thoughts out on the table. You want to be open-minded to others' opinions. You want to challenge things that don't make sense. Um, I think if you're like used to operating like that, it was you know it's not too it's not too radical. What's the most cutting um, edge? What's the most there? biting thing somebody said to you? <laughs> I'm just curious because like they're known for saying things <laughs> intensely to each other, right? So the the, the one yeah I, I can I can definitely say something. So so the, the the most absurd thing someone said to me was that. I just think that um, you have an IQ problem. Uh, they said, "I think I, I'm, I'm questioning <laughs> your your intellect." I, ju- I just think wow. your, your brightness level is not there on this topic. So I was like, "Wow, that's not even like you know, I did this thing poorly or like couldn't manage this project." No, so it's just, just like, your stupid. You're, I just, they just think I'm dumb. Yeah, they just think I'm stupid. Yeah. So I was but like, he didn't, they, okay. they, <laughs> "What's interesting about that is they just didn't say I think you're dumb, Matt." They said because that's what people tell me. They said, "I think you have right, your sure. IQ ch- your IQ challenged." <laughs> yeah, you're, like, you're, 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 yeah, you're not bright you're enough for this. <laughs> How old are you, Matt? I'm 30 years old. You're 30 years old. So during the 2007 crisis uh, and the Great uh, Recession, you were 18 years old or something. I was, I was in high school. Yeah, I was uh, you're in high school. In high school. And yeah. then during the 2000, um, during the 2000 crash, you were 10 years old. Yes. Did you, yes, what do you, do you remember those two crashes and how does it inform your thinking in today's vibrant market? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I can tell you, I can tell you the 2000, the, you know, the, the dot com or 2000 crash. I was certainly not thinking about, uh, you know, risk mitigation and, and, and really doesn't guide much of my thinking for the 2008, 2009 crisis, definitely much more real. Um, you know, had a lot of friends, family go through that, kind of see that real time. Um, it really just made me think about, you know, 
risk. It made me think about um, working really hard to to not be in a position to have to deal with the repercussions of something like that. Um, and just being smarter about you know investing. It actually got me interested to think about like like how, how would you navigate that? Like what what is a good investment then if everything's down fifty percent? Uh, how do you diversify against that? I do remember thinking that was one of the reasons that like interested it got me interested in finance and trading um, and saying, you know, is there a portfolio you can create that could withstand something like this, or is everybody going to have to go through this? Um, so that one's definitely more real. But but the earlier one, you know, I was I was busy doing other stuff. <laughs> what percentage of your net worth um, is in crypto? Uh, a fair amount. Over fifty. Yes. Yeah. Over seventy five. <laughs> No. Okay. So <laughs> somewhere between 50 and 75. So you feel very bullish on crypto and you're comfortable for that risk level as a 30 year old. Definitely. Yeah. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the mindset of, you know, you have to take swings. You, you kind of, you know, go through your life building up your, your background, your, uh, your abilities, um, and your pedigree and you get a great education. You can always fall back on that. Um, and so like when you have an opportunity like this in this market, like now's the time to take risk, to take swings, especially in the things you have conviction in that you can also shape and control. Um, so to me, it's, it's a no brainer to take risk in this market. Um, you know, if you have the appetite for it and you can withstand. Um, you know, drawdowns and and like be responsible with your own you know net worth and lifestyle. You have to, you have to kind of understand both sides of the trade. Um, but for me, I'm definitely comfortable being in it. In crypto, what's your biggest holding? What are you most bullish on? Is it Bitcoin and Ethereum? Um, yeah, without without giving away too much, I think like I've always been um, you know on the on the Bitcoin uh, train. Obviously, it's it's definitely a large holding. Um, but but also yeah, there's so many interesting projects now that are evolving and developing. Where it's hard not to to try and go understand what, you know what could the market cap of those projects be, what market share could they take? There's the pace at which this you know the market's expanding right now is it's unparalleled. It's incredible. Um, it's a little so strange, many, right? Yeah. It's it's so many interesting projects. Um, you know, you look at the growth of of just like the Solana ecosystem in the last six months and how that's exploded and all and, and the things being built. When there. you say growth of the ecosystem, what does that mean? Does that yeah. mean people buying it and speculating on the coin, or is there no, something else that no, you mean by that? I mean, I mean real, real platforms being built on the Solana blockchain. You look at just the capital market segment, right? There's Mango Markets, there's Serum, there's um, you know, there's Radium. So there's this whole decentralized finance being built on Solana as an alternative to ETH. And then there's the gaming, right? There's Atlas Polis, which is a, a whole a gaming system that's going to be built on Solana. There's NFTs now starting on Solana, right? There's the Aurori project and the DJ and Ape Society. So, like, the, all of this was spun up like in the last six months. Obviously, that the work has been going yeah. on for long, but the, the the momentum and growth is 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 incredible. And that's just one example of you know a, a, another project or chain that's that's being developed on. So, when you look at a project, looking at the developers and the ecosystem around it, and what actual services are being built on top of it for you is an indication of success. Bitcoin doesn't have much being built on top of it. Ethereum has a lot. And now Solana seems to be really um, capturing people's imagination, I think because it has less gas fees. In other words, it costs less to operate on it. Is that correct? Yeah, Solana is just like way faster and cheaper to transact in. And so when you think about like, decentralized exchanges and the growth there, right? You think about you, you need order books to operate really quickly, right? You can't have a, a DEX on something that's that's super slow. And so that's why you're seeing like Serum and Mango and and and, and others being built on Solana as an alternative. So yeah, I think um I think it, the the blockchain and like really depends on like what's the use case? What are you trying to accomplish? Right. Bitcoin's much more of a sort of value um right it's the first crypto ever created it's um you know it's got uh first mover advantage but it's really you know a blockchain that's um you know pretty slow relative to to something like solana so i do think it's really going to tie back to like what how does the blockchain operate and then what are you trying to build on top of it that that's going to drive kind of just decision decision making another stupid question uh on behalf of the audience and myself if solana uh, or ethereum for that matter has all of the value of storage of, you know, uh, capital like Bitcoin does, it's a store of value. Plus, it has this programming language and development built on top of it. Why would anybody hold Bitcoin instead of Solana and Ethereum, which you have two swings at bat, people can actually use those platforms to build interesting things. And you have the store of value. Yeah, I think I think Bitcoin, like there, there's a lot to be said for for 
one, you know, it, it was the first mover, and two, how much infrastructure there is around Bitcoin, right? Funds that are willing to trade it, people that are willing to hold it, um, you know, investment firms that have that have already allocated to BTC, right? There's this scarcity element of it as the first crypto that's completely decentralized with a cap supply of 21 million assets, 20 million tokens. Like that psychology of the network's always going to be there, and it's it's kind of already ingrained as the store of value blockchain in my mind. Um, that doesn't mean that there might not be competitive, you know, um, protocols out there, but I don't think the bid for Bitcoin is going away, you know, because of that. Mm. Uh, I mean, some people have talked about this. Like at some point, they might flip, and watching Solana race up the charts is pretty interesting. What's the most interesting project on Solana in your mind? The application and what are people doing? With that application, you mentioned a bunch of names. I wasn't familiar yep. with all of them. Yeah, I think um, so. Serum is really interesting. It's, it's Serum. Serum, yeah. It's SRM is the is the ticker. S E R U M is the name of the project. Um, but it's really just a, a decentralized exchange that's going to be, you know, really um, a functioning order book for a variety of different platforms and games and marketplaces and DeFi protocols that are, um, you know, going to be built on Solana. And then another one um, is is Pith, which which um, you, you probably have seen in the headlines, where it's basically like a pricing oracle or a data oracle that provides data to to um, you know to the Sol ecosystem that pulls from a variety of different sources, including some of the largest trading firms and you know in the world, right? So Jump is is a big lead there. Jane Street has agreed to publish data on Pith. Genesis has agreed to publish data there. DRW. So this is super interesting, Pith, like. So when you say an oracle, just to translate this for folks who are neophytes here, and I'll, I'll use myself as the neophyte, this is a way for people to get a source of data, and then be able to build a smart contract on it. So an example of that might be, we're doing a weather forecast, and I say, we're going to make some bet on the amount of precipitation. And who is the source of that precipitation in Ohio that we trust? Am I correct? Yeah, that's basically right, right there. They're really, um, you know, it might be a stupid example, right? I mean, I don't know. if no, you know no, it's, it's, a, it's a good it's it's real time on chain, you know, data. That's that's basically what it is. And, and a variety of different publishers can publish data to that that are that are in that ecosystem. And so it's basically just pulling from a variety of different sources, acting as the source of truth or the oracle for a lot of different markets and, and, and data sources. And for people who don't know, that is PYTH, the Pith Network. Is that a, a project, a nonprofit, an open source, or a company? Do I would you know? say it's, it's yeah, it's open source. Yeah, it's it. it's open source. There's uh, uh, basically a community of different firms that have kind of agreed to publish data to Pith. Uh, I named I named a few of them, but that can be constantly expanding, right? There's no cap on 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 those that might want to publish data to Pith. But seeing some of the you know larger institutions in the space agree to that, and and seeing Pith pull on the institutional world for pricing data. Um, I think is encouraging and, and and great to see like the actual adoption from from some of these like firms that are you know m more known for trading other asset classes outside of outside of crypto. So good, what good would be an example on. of like an interesting data source being published to Pith? I think even like you think about right Genesis's world in the OTC market, there's not much data out there on OTC trades, right? There's only like on exchange. So if there's some way for us to publish. You know, here's all of our OTC trading data. That's a whole new trading, you know, trading market and data source that's really not public on chain or, or live mm. anywhere today. That's now going to be published on on a platform like Pith. So that's that's one example. Um, and there's a lot out there, right? That, but I think that's that's most relevant to. What be to interesting us. is imagine if you could publish private company share prices to it. So I could say, hey, here's what Com or Grin or you know, Steezy yeah. or when Uber and you know, Coinbase were private or Facebook was private publishing the latest trades on secondary markets. So there are people who are secondary market makers in private, you know, like second market, which got bought by NASDAQ, but there's a yep. bunch of these brokers, if those brokers said, Hey, here's what people are paying for, you know, Coinbase before it went public, or, you know, that would be yeah, super interesting. That's exactly right. Exactly right. Mm. And, and, and second market was obviously the that's, that's the company that that Barry Silver sold to NASDAQ before we started yeah. Genesis. So it's mm. a good example of, of that for sure. All right, listen, you have been an absolutely fantastic guest. And I DM'd you an hour ago and you jumped <laughs> on. I really appreciate it. Uh, where are you based? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's great to, great to be on. I'm in, uh, I'm in Williamsburg, uh, Brooklyn. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Uh, my hometown, Brooklyn. I just Every time somebody says they live in Red Hook or Williamsburg, I'm like, <laughs> wow. 
<laughs> it's uh, fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I, I've been there for six months, but been in, in New York and Manhattan for um, yeah. the last seven years. I heard now Manhattan is cheaper than Brooklyn. I think parts. Yeah. I mean, it depends on where in Brooklyn for sure. Williamsburg is, is not cheap. Like it's, 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 uh, it's no different than Manhattan. Yeah. It's, it's pretty incredible, but a lot of good spots there, a lot of good restaurants. I I was uh, at a wedding in Red Hook and driving around Red Hook and there we went to this pig beach, like a barbecue place on the Gowanus. And I was like, wow, in the eighties, we used to dump bodies in here. Like, you know, after a bar fight, like this is where like people would throw guns and now, now you're hanging out having nods, some brisket and pulled pork and having brisket and pulled pork. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, the, the water is like not green and toxic anymore. It's like almost like if you fell in there, you would only die two days later as opposed to dying like <laughs> within minutes. But it's amazing to see people developing the waterfront on the Gowanus Canal. Yeah. It is. It is wild. It is wild. There's a lot of development there. Um, Bonkers. Not complaining. Yeah. 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 Shout out to Brooklyn. All right. Uh, Thanks for coming on the show and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Jason. Take care. Cheers. Yeah. I'll see you in Williamsburg. We'll have some barbecue when I'm in New York. Love to. All right. All right, everybody. Well, there you have it. Uh, Our first live guest on the show. This is kind of an interesting uh, thing that's happening here that you're all witnessing, which is um, I think now if I can keep doing the show at 10 o'clock and keep getting to bed at a reasonable hour, People would just know I'm going to be on at 10, like CNBC, and I could just say, hey, come on the show, and we send them a link. This could be like a really interesting uh, turn of events here. So let's do questions, and that'll we'll wrap up with some Ask Jason. So if you have an Ask Jason question, I'm going to take three of them. This question is from Kevin Lund. He asks, for startups that are attempting to create a paradigm shift that requires a significant upfront course to produce an MVP, do you have any advice on securing significant investing? Okay. So I would need a little more information, Kevin, if you want to give us a little background of what you're talking about, but I'll come up with a hypothetical one here. A hypothetical one is you're, uh, you want to create an electric car company or a supersonic jet like Boom or Tesla or Nikola, whoever. So if you want to be able to raise a large amount of money to build something, and I'm going to say large, that the MVP is going to cost $10 million. So the MVP for a boom to build like a little micro version like a small non-human version of a sonic jet let's just say it costs 10 million because they did build a small scale one that i think was functional i'm not sure or to build the atom i think that was the precursor to um the aerial atom was the precursor to to the tesla roadster number 16 of which is sitting right in my garage here um that one probably cost let's call it five hundred thousand. so We'll put those two there. How do you get the credibility to do that? Well, it's two different scales. 500,000, you could find a crazy angel investor who believes in you and thinks you're credible enough to build it and they gift it. And really what they're doing is they're investing in you and your ability to invest. Now, if it gets to 10 million or even 100 million to develop a drug, which you didn't bring up here, or let's say a medical device and it's going to cost 25 million. In order to fund that, what would you be looking for as an investor? You'd be looking at the team, you'd be looking at the plan, and uh, you'd probably talk to a bunch of people to say, is this even technically feasible? So you do some kind of study on that. That's what investors would do. So let's take Veranos as an example, a blood testing machine that takes a little drop of your blood and runs 200 different tests. Well, when people who were going to invest in Veranos heard that pitch, they were like, wow, that's audacious. Awesome. That would change everything. If you could just give a drop of blood or a little tiny micro vial of blood. You remember that little picture of Elizabeth Holmes like this? If you could give a micro vial of blood and get 200 tests, wow, that could change the world, right? You could do this every month and get all that data. And then, you know, instead of doing it every two years and taking out eight vials to get 50 different tests done, this could change the world. And when they talk to people who were in the blood testing space, who were building blood testing machines and had PhDs in that, they said it's not possible. It, it, the laws of physics do not allow you to run 200 tests on a tiny droplet of blood in like this little micro vial. So uh, that's why serious investors didn't invest in Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. They got all these other weird investors who were not Silicon Valley investors and they invested. So you would be doing some kind of deep diligence uh, on that technology and you would be looking at the team. So I would keep your expectation low if you have no background and, uh, and you haven't built out your team. now. If your team worked at Tesla on batteries 
And another person on your team worked at Waymo on self-driving and another person worked on electric bicycles and you were going to build some new type of uh, car, an ATV, let's say. You wanted to make the world's first electric ATV type of go-kart or whatever. Well, if you had three people who worked at Tesla and Toyota and Waymo, okay, now you've got like a bench and you're saying like, here's my bench. So you'd be selling your ability to group that talent together. It's not your God-given right. You are not entitled to get funded by the venture community. They have a range of companies they can invest in, and you are but one option. And you must beat out the other options in order to get their money. So that is how I would look at that if I was you. And just really have that candid discussion with yourself of, do, do I deserve this money? And I'm the, am I the best bet for that person? Does that make sense? I hope it does. All right. So we'll take uh, two more questions. Michael on YouTube says, do you think any of these crypto projects have actual users? Great question. I think this is the big issue is that many of the crypto projects are based on speculation uh, and based on people gaming the system and there's no actual use case. That's probably why the SEC believes most of them are securities because there's nobody using them. There's no utility to them. Now, when you look at NFTs, people are collecting them. People collect art in the real world. So NFTs feels to me like these are assets, like alternative assets like art. Art generally doesn't appreciate from like zero to $200,000 per, you know, animated GIF, like the board uh, Ape Yacht Club has. So that's a little strange. And that kind of is would be like if you bought a baseball card six months ago for 25 cents, and it became worth 200,000. Usually that's a journey that happens over 20, 30, 40 years. And it's the, you know, the fact that there aren't many of those in production that makes them valuable and, and people's ability to connect them. So the, I, I would say the answer to your question is I think most of these crypto projects have been based upon speculation and based upon manipulation and not utilization. And so that is scary. And that's why there's so much greed and so much market manipulation and why uh, we're having this discussion about regulators coming in. I think the regulators are scared to death that this all collapses. And when I brought up earlier in the program with Matt, what would happen if there was a contagion and the Bitcoin network went down, which is like, okay, boomer, Bitcoin can't go down. It's like, Bitcoin hasn't gone down. But everything does go down at some point. So Bitcoin will go down at some point, right? And Bitcoin will get hacked at some point. I mean, it's a miracle that it hasn't been. And there's only been edge cases where it's been hacked. But as the amount of money in Bitcoin goes up, and the number of participants goes up, it becomes a bigger target. So people used to say this about the Mac and iOS, like they just Windows was the bigger target, all the hackers went there. And then all the elite people went to iOS and iOS is now the target and people have figured out ways to, you know, uh, hack and spoof people's iOS devices, as we saw in the recent hacks with that Israeli company that was giving people a way to exploit iOS devices. So just because it hasn't happened doesn't mean it won't happen. And just because it's unlikely doesn't mean <clears throat> or it's improbable doesn't mean it won't happen. Something that's very improbable, you know, to happen today, you know, for it to happen over the next 10,000 days, it might go from improbable to happen on this day today, one time, but at 10,000 spins of the roulette wheel, it might be very, very common, right? So you have to look at the arc of time. And I think that's what's got the SEC spooked here is that they're really scared that a lot of people are watching these returns and getting FOMO and the, the crypto space is pretty toxic in certain uh, subsections of it, like the Bitcoin toxicity movement, where they're like, hey, have fun being poor. Okay, boomer, you don't get it. Well, that's kind of how they get you to join, you know, an MLM program or a cult. So that's what's happening, I believe, with regulation right now. Let's take a final question. Okay, Richard Wu asks, for your launch accelerator, is there an MRR target for consumer SaaS or just a DAO threshold? Great question. So to translate into plain English, we have the launch accelerator, we give people $100,000 for 6% of their companies, we work with them for 16 weeks, we introduce them to 1000 investors. And then most typically, we will co invest in the company uh, down the road, uh, when they raise their seed round or their series A, if they're making progress. And, um, you know, it's not guaranteed, but it happens, I would say four out of five times that we wind up investing more money, because we have the syndicate.com, which is the world's largest collection of angel investors in a single syndicate 9000 of them, I believe right now. So uh, for a consumer SaaS company, we're actually if the product is really good, we starting to dip down to uh, investing in companies 
Um, if there's two or three builders on the founder team, we'll even um, invest pre-revenue and before the products launch. So we've done that two or three times now. We will take a risk. This is new for us, but we've decided we will go a little bit earlier. If let's say you had three founders, one's a designer, a UX person, and two are developers. If we see an actual team of coders and developers uh, and designers, we will invest. If we see three people who are three idea people and business people, idea and business people, <laughs> using air quotes here, well, they're not, they're going to have to hire a team that's going to cost millions of dollars. And why would we invest in that when we could invest in companies that have a little more traction? So um, that's basically where we sit. So it would depend, Richard, if you're a builder, if you're an actual coder and you build iOS apps and you've got a designer who works with you and then you've got a data scientist who works with you and the three of you want to come to the accelerator and you built an interesting prototype and we know you have product velocity so we know the product's going to be improving even if you don't raise a million dollars to give to a development shop that's what we like to see so a great question hey everybody thanks for joining us i'll talk to you soon bye bye <laughs>